0: a room upgrade?
1: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict
0: demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com
1: governance. IBM. Let's create. If you are willing to wake up in the morning and you're reasonably nice, and you live in the developed world, you, the world is set up for you. Like, you can't... It's, it's just really hard to fail. So my position has always been, look, I'm not, not, not going to fail. It's fine. I mean, I'll, like, figure a way. And, it's, you know, knock on wood, so far, things have worked out pretty well. So I don't... I don't I'm not feel... I feel like what prevents people from sometimes, sometimes doing interesting things is they have an anxiety about stepping outside of a narrow definition of what they're good at. I don't.
0: That was Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fergoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Sam, and uh, I just wanted to do some housekeeping at the top before we listen to Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, We are on a kind of hiatus here uh, for the next five weeks. We'll be returning on August 25th with the wonderful Whitney Cummings, but until then, for the next five weeks, uh, we are not going to go away. We are going to uh, re-release some of my favorite conversations that We've had on this podcast over the past three years. Those of you who've been listening from the beginning uh, have probably heard all of these, but we've been finding that a great deal of uh, our new listeners have uh, not experienced our back catalog, all of which is uh, for free and can be streamed and downloaded on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you're getting your podcasts. But since uh, we are in the throes of summer, and, and people are out of town, on vacation, their kids are at home all day, every day. Um, I know it is a time where, uh, p- you know, people have less time. And quite frankly, uh, in the interest of transparency, we have found that booking the show week after week in the summer is really, really challenging. And uh, we decided just to not even, you know, just I, 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 I'm going to take a break. I have a new movie that I am uh, writing and hopefully going to direct in September. Uh, I have a couple music videos that I'm excited to share with all of you that I have directed, and uh, yeah, it's time to it's time to take um, a small small break so that uh, everyone here on the Talk Easy team can come back renewed in the fall and winter we will be doing the show from uh august 25th to pretty much i think december 25th um it's a long haul and we have so many wonderful episodes planned i can't tell you i mean it's um people i've been wanting to have on the show for a long time are uh, going to come on so i'm excited to share that all with you i'm also excited uh for the next 5 weeks for you to hear these episodes Today is with writer, podcaster, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, You have perhaps read one of his books, including David and Goliath, uh, Outliers, Blink. He has a, uh, I'm going to say world-renowned, truly world-renowned podcast called Revisionist History. Uh, Season four of his show is now out uh, through his new podcast company, Pushkin Industries. I did this episode two years ago. Uh, in New York, at his house. It is, to date, really one of my favorite conversations. I was uh, more uh, researched and prepared than usual, I'll be honest. I I had done an ample amount of research for this one. When we originally aired the episode uh, two years ago, I set it up in a much more uh, NPR fashion, where I describe malcolm's home and 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 i will I do want to say Malcolm has the kind of home that you would expect that he has you know it is uh beautiful um but not uh outlandish, and in the middle of his home is a library where you need a ladder to go up and fetch the books and it's exactly the kind of home um without you know revealing too much more about his uh, his his personal space it's exactly the kind of home you'd expect Malcolm Gladwell to have and yeah it, it it's it's one of these conversations that i think um oscillates back and forth between uh his work and in his personal life and and i i hope with this episode like with every episode that we do uh you have a better sense of who this man is uh in the world and in his work and how his sort of peculiar personality um i i i I'm I'm reluctant to even call it eccentric i think he is one of these people that just genuinely loves the work that he does and uh it's hard to find people like that it's hard to be someone like that and uh he he's one of my you know favorite thinkers out there so even if you are not a huge gladwell fan uh, I would listen to this episode because I do confront him uh, about some of your potential criticisms, even if I don't personally agree with them. I think one of the reasons uh, I love Malcolm, and even if you don't like Malcolm, that's fine, but he is someone uh, genuinely open to ideas and dialogue and a kind of uh, idiosyncratic discourse that... Uh, most people are not open to he just likes ideas even if they're wrong-headed even if they don't make too much sense um even if they're just entertaining he likes to entertain them and so for the next hour we entertain a whole bunch of ideas about himself his work and uh everything in between i really hope you like it and um i will see you next week with another one of my favorite episodes so finally here is malcolm gladwell I want to understand how you arrived at where you are today. And I know that's a big undertaking, but I've been researching for the last couple of days going through stuff. And I want to start with, uh, in David and Goliath, you talk about this idea of desirable difficulties. Yeah. Um, you describe it that, uh, to elaborate on that term, you said there are sometimes cases when your performance will improve. If I make the task of learning more difficult for you, not always, but what they do is draw a line between difficulties that are ultimately desirable and those that are not. I just want to start in the beginning with this. I mean, you're born in England. You move to Ontario, Canada when you're six. Mm-hmm. Do you have any of those desirable difficulties or undesired di- difficulties growing up?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> I, I'm not... I, I can... Uh, I have looked... Uh, without success for evidence of difficulty in my life, and I can't find anything. I, um, <laughs> I've, you know, it's been pretty much... What a blessing that is, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in like a normal, happy, middle-class family in a stable, prosperous, peaceful, tolerant part of the world. Basically got all my education for free. I mean, I, you know, there's no... Was, did, had no marriage periods of unemployment... My health has been good. I mean, I don't... There's no... I mean, I sort of think... I tend to think that people from... um, uh, If you are upper middle class or middle class, you're educated and you're a reasonably nice person and you can get up in the morning and you live in any number of... any part of the developed world, you don't really have any excuses. And you can't... Any claim you make to... Somehow, struggling is pretty lame compared to the rest of the world. So, <laughs> I can't locate any real difficulties in my life. Mm.
0: Well, you're describing a, a perfect human being,
1: almost an existence
0: without problems. I don't think. I don't think we have to say they're excuses.
1: Yeah. I think you could have had. I mean, I have issues, but my point is, they're not insurmountable or sure. worthy of. And in that sense, I don't think I'm unusual. I think, you know, most people. have of um, from who share my background do not have insurmountable difficulties.
0: Mm. Where do you think the rebelliousness came from when you're a teenager? Because you you start this zine, it's called Ad Hominem. Mm-hmm. It's a great name for a zine, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you run a column called The Moral Pejorative. Yeah. You're rallying your students to protest. Uh, your principal getting transferred that's fairly, as you mentioned uh, in the Ezra Klein show, that's a fairly unusual thing for someone to do uh, in Canada.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it rebellion. I would call it mischief. I mean, there's a big difference. We were not uh, railing against the status quo or the established order of things. We were, our tongue was in our cheek. You know, it was like we were just having fun with, and Canada being Canada, it wasn't like our this these rebellious acts were met with any kind of um response or objection or there was no consequences no it was like it's like everyone's looked the other way you know it's like or they just kind of rolled their eyes or they were amused by it i mean that was our, I, our intention was not to rock the boat our intention was um make fun of the boat make fun of the boat i mean it's just like you know and the great the lovely thing about canada is that people have a sense of humor about this kind of stuff mm. um so it was not. I don't think of myself as being terribly rebellious, but I do think of myself as being mildly mischievous.
0: Mildly mischievous. So mm-hmm. where do you think that comes from? Because you describe a childhood where it, 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 that behavior is not exactly congruous with how
1: you were raised. Um, no, my parents are. Uh, my parents are rebellious, actually. Okay. I, I represent. The watered down version of my parents' rebellion, <laughs> um, so it comes from them, but it's just kind of i mean they had things they rebelled against real mm. things they rebelled against
0: um so you 're the p g thirteen version I of am the
1: p g thirteen version of my parents um, they're my both of them uh my father's no longer with us, but my mother is they're both um uh, you know they there's a there's a real badass element to the two of them in a very Genteel, um, uh, carefully disguised way, but I, you know, my mother is not someone you mess with, and my father is someone who did not require the approval of the world to do anything that he wanted to do. Uh,
0: did you inherit some of those qualities?
1: Well, like I said, I inherited a very—I mean, it's watered the down. Watered. By the time it hits me, it's pretty watered down. But it's—should uh, someone mess with you? <laughs> People can mess with me. My problem, my dif- the difference is, well, if you mess with me, I just don't get upset.
0: See, that's what I had an impression. I, uh, this is my feeling about you.
1: Yeah, I don't. I, 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 I used to. There was a time in my life when I took offense at this kind of stuff, and now I'm just, I just can't bring myself, I can't muster any kind of indignation. Ah. Um, <laughs> that, I, that's
0: an impressive feat.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, in a way it's a kind of, I think what people do is they tend to exaggerate. You know, there's a human tendency to take your critics more seriously than your supporters. So you have 10 critics and 10 supporters, and what you do is you obsess about your 10 critics and you forget about your 10 supporters. And I, sort of, at a certain point in my life, realized this is crazy. If I have 10 supporters, why do I care if I have 10 critics? I got 10 people who like me. And in real life, in fact... The breakdown's not like... That. You know, most people who are producing something creative, the ratio of supporters to critics is 9 to 1 or 9.5 to 1. You never have more critics than supporters. There's always people who can find... And people just kind of mindlessly focus on the small number of, um, of vocal... Dissenters. Dissenters. Why? It's, it's, total, it's totally bananas, way to live your life. Um, so, you know, if I... Uh, now I just ignore them. It's like, what's the point?
0: The why is the biggest part of that, though. Because I've often figured, tried to figure that out with my own life. Is People say, oh, you do this well, or you've written this, that's interesting. And then there's two people on Twitter who said, oh, this person's terrible. Yeah. And I can recall with, with stunning clarity the words and the verbiage they used against me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell you... Praise at all? Anything that's that's generic?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I, am with you. That's very very human tendency, and you have to kind of you have to uh, you've got to make a conscious decision to reverse your critical polarity.
0: Do we want to be liked? That it seems like too basic of an explanation.
1: I don't know whether is it that we want to be liked, or is it that just that we're yeah we're just more sensitive about um, we're so acutely aware of our flaws right. that when someone identifies them, um, we, we feel um, uh, like guess wounded in some special right. way. Like know? they
0: know something that only I'm supposed to know. Exactly. Or yeah. rather, they know something maybe I didn't even consider.
1: Yeah. The other, the other part of this strategy is, um, not strategy, but approach to life is, um, is you just have to own up to your flaws. I mean, as opposed to trying to hide them, uh-huh. just like cop to them.
0: Okay. And so what are those?
1: Well, you know, I, um, you know, I, do I oversimplify things sometimes? Sure. Am I unnecessarily provocative in certain times <laughs> or places? Absolutely. You know, do I. Uh,
0: is golfing considered crack?
1: Is, uh, golf, yeah, it's like <laughs> these are not, none of this is news <laughs> to me. I can tell you what they're, what the critics are going to say. Do I flip flop on things all the time? You know, I, in I, fact, I pride myself on how much I change my mind. I
0: think, that is, I think flip-flopping is actually not a real thing. Or yeah. rather, uh, it should not be viewed negatively. I, I'm with you, totally it, with it's, you. It's an absurd exactly. way of going through life. It's the
1: dumbest thing in the world that we should ever attack someone for flip-flopping. Flip-flopping is the great, one of the great delights and pleasures of being a sentient human. is
0: Change dis- your mind. Yeah,
1: discovering something you didn't know was true and then like, realizing, oh, wow, that means... I have to go back and, like, reverse my position on all kinds. That's, that's like, a that's a sign of someone who's alive in the world.
0: I wanted to go on this oversimplification thing. Mm-hmm. This has been talked about uh, ad nauseum, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd say. Yeah. But I wanted to break this down because I, I just want to get it over with. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said in 2013 on that David and Goliath book tour... He said, if my books appear to a reader to be oversimplified, then you shouldn't read them. You're not the audience. Yeah. Which seemed fair. Uh On this quote, uh, Christopher Chabris, who I will remove my feelings about this person for now. He wrote in Slate, but consider what Gladwell's quote means. He's saying that if you understand his topics well enough to see what is erroneous or missing, then you are not the reader he wants. At a stroke, he has said that anyone equipped to critically review his work should not be reading it. How convenient.
1: Oh, I mean, he, you know, first of all, he, um, that was someone who was engaged in the active process of coming up with reasons to disagree with me. Um, the way I, That's a very tendentious reading of that. What I meant was as follows. On anything that you know a lot about, you inevitably find... Popular discourse, frustrating. So there are two things in the world that I know a great deal about. Track and field and cars. <laughs> if I read uh, an article for the general audience about a track and field, about an athlete, a runner, whatever, I'm invariably halfway through, I throw up my hands and say, can't believe they said that. What right. are they talking about? Don't you know anything about running? And then I stop myself I think, oh, wait a minute. It's not for me. Right. Right. If I'm I'm assuming you're not a big track and field fan. No, but I'm thinking
0: this is, I imagine this is how Bill Simmons approaches most NBA writing.
1: Yeah. So for you, for me to talk to you in a way that will make you interested in track and field, I have to change the way I talk about track and field. If you were someone in my, if you're my friend David Epstein who knows an insane amount about track, we have a totally different conversation. One conversation is not wrong and the other is right. They're different. They have a different, Intention. There's a spectrum. Yeah, where you, I'm trying to engage in the sport. David's already engaged. David and I are quibbling at the finer, you know, <laughs> at the edges of the, right? And that's what, you know, Chris is, Mr. Chabers is misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm saying when I write about psychology for a general audience, it is not the same conversation I will have with another psychologist, but it's by definition different. Just as when he talks to his graduate students he talks in a different way than he does to his freshman class. It's not that he's making stuff up for his freshman class. It's that they don't know anything about psychology, so he has to talk in a different way. Same thing, you know, so it's like, that seems to me such an obvious point, that outside of our, and it's why, one of the best ways for me to avoid feeling frustrated and throwing something across the room is not to read articles on track and field that are intended for a general audience. It's a very simple way to solve this problem, right? And that's what I'm saying. Look, you have a PhD from Harvard in social psychology. You should not be reading David and Goliath. It's going to frustrate you, right?
0: Well, I have to say, I, I love <laughs> the image of you on your computer finding a track and field article and be like, God, God damn it. No, not again. I can't
1: <laughs> believe you're saying this, right? <laughs> but of course you do that, right? That's the, 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 and the, you know, it's like a, and it's, like I said, the only other place I have that is with cars. I'll read, I read like the review of cars. I do it just to kind of bait myself. <laughs> In the back of, of the Sunday Wall Street Journal, they always have a, car, a review. A, 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 a car review. Yeah. Um, Dan I Neal. I, I
0: didn't know this, but yeah. okay. Dan
1: writes, uh, and Daniel is writing for a general audience. And I re- actually really like Daniel. But I read him, and every time I read him, I'm like, oh, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> and then I realize, oh, wait a minute. Not for me, somebody else. Is it Dan Neal? Am I making it up? It's someone like that. Anyway, whoever it is, and if he's listening, I love your stuff, and I have to stop myself from complaining because you're not writing for me. Mm-hmm. This
0: seems like a fair and, and obvious explanation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've heard you make it in so many other words before, yeah. and yet it hasn't gone away.
1: Yeah, it's never going to go away. It's fine.
0: Is that really, is that how it is?
1: I mean, it's like, you can't, the thing is, you have to at some point surrender the, um, the notion that you can win over your critics. You're not going to win them over. It's no point. Oh, by the way, it's unnecessary. You, that's not the, my job is, my job as a writer is not to convince people who think that I'm an idiot that I'm not an idiot. That's not my job if you think I'm an idiot, I can't, there's nothing I can do that. I'm not going to change your mind, right? Mm. You're not into me. It's fine. I, you know, just as no one is ever going to convince me that, uh, you know, to like Beyonce's music. I don't like Beyonce's music. I just don't. And I, there's no scenario where she's going to put out an album that I'm going to like. Right?
0: <laughs> well, now the headlines for this podcast are going to be Malcolm Gladwell. I not like Beyonce I, don't,
1: I mean and by the way I am self-aware enough to know that uh, she's a genius and many many people who know a lot more about music really really dig her uh-huh. she's hugely important it just so happens though that not your my general? interest in what she does don't coincide but Beyonce should not sit up at night and say what can I do to win over Gladwell <laughs> she's doing just fine her job is to appeal to people who like <laughs> Beyoncé, right?
0: <laughs> Again, another great image is Beyoncé. Yeah, unrest. Not like
1: she's going to... She's not wasting any time like on no. Malcolm Gladwell's musical taste.
0: But you're also talking about journalism on a whole. I've heard you say that journalists tend to react and respond in lockstep. This is, yeah. a, this is a thing you find to be problematic in contemporary journalism. Uh, you say people should be different for the sake of being different. yeah. And I'm thinking, what what makes you different?
1: What makes me different? Yeah. I would say it much more simply, which is that I don't have a lot of anxiety about my position in the world. So I don't feel like I have anything to lose by saying whatever's on my mind. Um, I don't have... Some people genuinely do have kind of anxiety about that kind of stuff. For whatever reason, I don't particularly understand why. I don't. and so is that true across the board when it comes to anxiety? I'm not a terribly anxious person. I mean, I'm anxious about very, very specific things that don't really have to do with my career. I don't I have never really worried about my career. To the extent I worry, I worry about personal things, not professional things. Like friendships or friendships relationships or, or relationships, relationships where, but my job has always been for me like I str- I just like I said before, if you are willing to wake up in the morning and you're reasonably nice and you live in the developed world, the world is set up for you. Like you can't, it's it's just really hard to fail. Mm. So my position has always been, look, I'm not, it's not, I'm not going to fail. It's fine. I mean, I'll like figure a way. And you know, knock on wood so far, things have worked out pretty well. So I don't, I don't, I'm not feel, I feel like what prevents people from, Sometimes, sometimes doing interesting things is they have an anxiety about stepping outside of a narrow definition of what they're good at. Mm. I don't. It's why I did the podcast. Um, for example, um, you know, th- there is one. I was trying a new. It is a very different medium. Which of course, it never even occurred to me that it was until I got halfway through. I was like, oh my goodness, this is very different. <laughs> um, but it never occurred to me not to do it because it was different and strange. I was like, "Whatever, let's try it. Um, maybe it'll fail. In which case, I'll just go back to writing articles for the New Yorker." I mean, it was an, I didn't spend a lot of time worrying about it. I just did it, and pretty good backup plan, by the way. Yes, I have a good backup. But I mean, that's part of what I'm saying. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not rational for someone like me to have anxiety. I have, for all the reasons I've enumerated, I've enumerated. And also, you know, the fact that I was at a posit- t- time in my career where there's just zero penalty for failure. Mm. So why should I pretend there is? Why should I drum up some imaginary neurosis when you know, none there's no reason for it?
0: Do you think this do you think what you're saying applies specifically to you? And I guess maybe more specifically what I'm saying is does someone or does anyone have to reach a certain level of success to get to the place of, well, I'll just try anything, because why not? Yeah. Did you, did you, no, did you mean, start from that point?
1: I had that attitude. You know, my earliest jobs were in, um, essentially on the conservative end of the media spectrum. And I took those jobs because I was sort of conservative at the time, but also because they were jobs. Um, you know, at one point I was working for Insight magazine, which was owned by the Reverend Moon. You mm. know, it's like, it's sort of embarrassing in retrospect, but like, whatever. It was like a year, of, it was a year job, paid the bills, learned a lot, had fun, uh-huh. traveled around. You know, I don't know. It's like, you can take stuff too seriously and sort of overthink stuff. Um, there's a lot of overthinking. People in this, this is one of the things, I mean, there's a reason I'm so obsessed with writing about higher education in America. And that is for a number of reasons, and one is this: the extent to which people agonize about something where they go to college, on the assumption that that um, is going to determine the trajectory of their lives, which is just so nonsense to me. I mean, no part of that makes any sense to me, and I just think, what kind of weird mindset says says that a decision you make at seventeen is gonna, or eighteen is gonna affect the rest of your career? That's just Bananas. Not only affected, but irrevocably affected. <laughs> it's, like, it's bananas. Like no way. Does anyone care where? What percentage of my readers know where I went to college, or even remotely care? A better question is, what percent care? I would say the answer is something like point zero 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 five percent. No one cares. Do I even? Do I care where any of my friends? I can't even tell you where half my friends. When I think about my friends, actually, my close group of friends, you know, some of them went to fancy schools. Some of them went to the least fancy schools. Under, my, one of my best friends went to Abilene Christian. Does that fact in any way enter my mind when I'm talking to him? Never. Who cares? It was like in the seven. It was in the 80s. It's like, the 80s is like so long ago that, you know, it's like the statute of limitations has run out on, mm-hmm. that, on Abilene Christian. So it's like, you know, this, this stuff, there's just these kind of, um, there's a great book written by, I think it was Jerome Bruner, a psych- great psychologist at NYU, about 20 years ago, I have it over there. It's called Three Seductive Ideas. Uh. And one of the seductive ideas that he's objecting to is the notion of that our lives are overly determined by our origins, which he thinks is a misreading of Freud. And the college thing is a version of that, that we just think everything, so is the idea that if you don't get the right kind of stimulus in your first three years, your toast. These are all versions of the same, of the same um, delusion, which says that everything is kind of set in stone um, as a youth, and then that you you can't get off that trajectory for the rest of your life, which I just think is craziness.
0: I find it crazy, but you have to understand, for my generation, I'm I'm 22. I did two years of school and I left. Um, we're taught this we're taught that it irrevocably affects your life we're taught that this is a path you go down or or you leave it yeah and so people my age i mean there is a mass to get back to this there's a mass anxiety yeah because we were told since 15 freshman high school you better start figuring out where you're going to go to college so
1: crazy! Like better, my... You better figure
0: out what your major is. You better figure out what you want to do with your life. You better figure out how to do a 401k. You better figure out how to do... Yeah. This is just what was told to me. And I didn't go to... I went to a public high school in California.
1: Yeah. But they ruined your adolescence, which should have been the most fun five years of your life. Not mine. Not yours, but in gen- your Because I had
0: great parents yeah. who said, Well, yeah. do what you got to do.
1: Yeah. I don't remember worrying about anything in my teenage years it was
0: fantastic were you just a happy person then? no
1: it was a happy environment it was there w- w- nobody was worried about any of these things very few people in my co- high school went to college the colleges it's Canada you, you just you write down on a piece of paper where you want to go and they let you in <laughs> it's, it's it's like it's just like it's like, l- like, it's like a piece of paper like this the literally rip, the red piece of paper. No, no no I'm when I I'm not that's not a that's not a you know, metaphor I wrote, you get a piece of paper with the colleges in Ontario listed, and you rank them in the order that you'd like to attend them, and then you mail a piece of paper off to a central government processing unit. You know, that is how you apply to college. There's no note? You're, then your school sends your grades, and you're done. You're, that's it. It's, I mean, it's different now. This is a long time ago, because um, I'm old. But um, no, it's like, wait, you know, like I worried about it for like a day and then I was done and then I all I worried about what did I worry about? I don't think I worried about anything
0: I want what? to ask you that well what, what
1: back then I mean I worried about stuff later but not back then mm-hmm. what's if you're 16 what would you what would you worry about? I mean like
0: <laughs> well I won't give you my laundry list Malcolm <laughs> but were, were you an engaged teenage kid? I mean what were you like? were you, were you optimistic a,
1: naive I had a friend whose name is Terry.
0: This is the person you started the zine with, him and uh, Howard? Yes,
1: that's right. So Terry, Terry Martin, uh, who uh, was this enormous influence on me, and he um, was a completely fearless, intellectually fearless person who thought of the world, who sort of taught me this incredible lesson. I sort of knew, but he kind of... um, He accentuated it. Uh, He taught you that, taught me that the world is, was our oyster. That it's like, it's all out there. You just have to find it. It's super fun. If you're interested in something, I mean, we used to play hooky from school for like huge amounts of time. But not to goof off, to do better schoolwork, Like, because our whole idea was, <laughs> school's not hard enough. Let's make it hard. Let's make it hard on our own. And so we convinced our moms, look, I mean, we, gotta, we have this thing we want to do. We're going to stay home for the next two weeks. Just send a note and just tell us that, they, our moms were totally complicit in this. But T- Terry was kind of like that. He, he wasn't, Terry later, to give you a sense of what he was like, he wanted to write a history of his grandparents who were Russian immigrants. Uh-huh. You know, Mennonites came from Russia. And so he taught himself Russian. Do you understand? Like when he was like 20. Uh, Uh, like He's that kind of guy because he wanted to read original sources into Russian. So when you have that kind of attitude, and I don't think it occurred to him that that might be hard. He was like, whatever. I have time. I'm 20. You know, like I'll start doing it. I mean, what's the the worst that could happen? I don't learn Russian, right? I mean, it's not like it's wasted time. I could be playing video games. You know, that was his kind of... um, I found him uh, that to have that example as a fourteen-year-old in your life is just sort of intoxicating.
0: Hmm. Two years ago, at twenty, um, before my grandfather passed, or maybe around the, at the right when he passed, and my grandmother's still alive, they came from Mexico and they only can speak Spanish, mm-hmm. and my Spanish is it's atrocious, mm-hmm. it's bad. And I thought. I'm going to learn the language enough so that I can say goodbye or give him some final note. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was a great idea in the way that your friend Mm -hmm. learned Russian. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But I I didn't do it. I haven't done it. Yeah. And um, this is an odd detour, I admit.
1: You've got time. Do I? Yeah, you do. Well, you've got all the time in the world.
0: What do you make of that? Like the idea of having time to do things. I mean, we always worry so much that time
1: is just evaporating. You're 22. You're well, like, you know, you're, you're 31 years younger than I am. You, you got time. <laughs> I have time. And I'm, you know, 53. And so. you
0: seem more optimistic than I am.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe I am an optimist. Do <clears throat> you think so? yeah I guess so i mean i you know like i have i my i come from pretty optimistic stock, so you know, there's a powerful genetic component in all of this mm-hmm. um, you know we didn't we're not people who dwell on mostly because the narrative of my parents' lives was a narrative of not to sound corny but of dreams coming true uh. you know uh they got what they wanted from. More than they wanted from the world and that was I think something that was very true of their generation as well um, you know they this is the generation born just before the Second World War that witnessed you know the kind of golden age of the West um, and not just witnessed it uh, participated mm. in this golden age um, and you know what's not to like like that's that's pretty damn good. If you had to pick a time to be born in human history, 1934, it's a pretty good time when my mother was born. My dad was, actually, I was, some, the early 30s, actually. <laughs> pretty good time to be born, right?
0: Do you think it's worked out for you in that way? I remember you talking about uh, when you're in D.C. writing. You, you were an immigrant at the time, right? You, you had not become yes. a citizen yet.
1: still a am- still have not become a citizen but
0: okay well um, <laughs> knock on wood yes um, you were talking about how you wanted to make your fortune mm-hmm I've been thinking about that you've said that on the Ezra Klein John I've been wondering what what does that mean make my fortune for you what does that mean
1: uh, I mean I think it just meant establish an independent life for myself you know Um, there's a feeling uh, as a kid you know I was I like many teenagers more than teenagers as like many kids I had a series of obsessions things that I was you know really into cars and really into sports and really into and I would when you reflect on that you realize the reason you do that as a kid is that you're very attracted to the notion of mastery. You want to, what you want is the feeling that there is a particular world which you not control, because it's way too strong, but understand that, you know, the world is this huge, vast, disorienting, confusing place, but there's a little corner of it that you know, you know, I knew running. I could tell you who won the 5,000 meters of the 1972 Munich Games and what his time was. Right. So that no matter what was going on in the world, I knew and I could tell you I could look out on the street and I could identify every car that went past. Like make model year. (laughs) Right. That's what I knew. And that, you know, when I say I want to make my fortune, what I meant was I wanted to do that on a slightly larger scale. I wanted to participate in a world where I understood the world. I had a place in it. I understood how it worked. I knew the major players. I knew the rules. Um, and that was my, it was sort of my, I guess, if I had to go back and interrogate what my ambition was as a 22-year-old, that's what it was, to um, to master that in the same way that I had mastered track and field as a 13-year-old. Mm. Do you think with each
0: passing book or, or even the podcast that you're you're figuring that out? your place in the world or rather your corner of the world a little bit more?
1: I think so. I think I, I have my own little corner. I don't think it's necessarily a very big corner, but (laughs) I have a little corner. People know where to find me. They know what my corner, what happens in my corner. Um, What happens? You know, there's like, you know, there's, um, there's a kind of, uh, steady flow of, um, of uh, hijinks of one level or another. <laughs> I don't mean that in an entire, not everything I do is mischievous, but I mean, you know, stuff happens. There's like, there's going to be some flow of, of ideas coming out.
0: At the very least, it's not boring.
1: So, yeah, it won't be boring. You know, there, some of it's going to be dumb. Some of it's going to work. I don't know. It's like, they just know what's over there. And it's, um, and I have identified other corners yeah. that I like to participate in at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, I know... Um, and I, get, I take enormous pleasure. I love... You know, I'm still an obsessive track fan. And there's, a, there's this website called Let's Run, which all the series runners read. And nothing gives me more pleasure than hanging out in the message boards of Let's Run. Because <laughs> it's just like... It's just like so sp- hilariously specific. Like there was one trope that just cracks me up so much. Paul Ryan last election season was talking about how he used to be a marathoner and he you know he remember this he lied about his marathon time he (laughs) said that he had run a three hour marathon and he'd actually run a four hour marathon and he claimed three hours and all the runners went back to try and fact check this because he didn't (laughs) say where he'd run it and they discovered no no no, he'd run a four hour now just so you know the difference between a three hour and a four hour marathon is the difference between i mean i can't even tell you it's the difference between a and Z It's like Four hour is You're a jogger right. And you run Three times a week For six miles Three hours is That is You have to be Super serious To run three hours
0: This I know Because my mom Has run ten yes. marathons Okay And one time She qualified For the Boston Marathon which wow. is Which is harder To qualify for yeah, yeah. And for her age group She made it But I know the difference She always would say Like This person beat me By 32 minutes And I'm like That's not that. Much. Yeah that's a
1: lot That's a lot
0: That's a lot <laughs>
1: That's a lot Of <laughs> time so for him to lie about this is huge. It's huge. I mean, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. So runners have not forgiven him about this. <laughs> but every now and again, there's someone who will post something about that liar, Paul Paul Ryan. And some part of me just surges in pride every time they say that. It's like, that's so fantastic. I love that we nailed him on this thing. And by the way.
0: And an insane this, lie. It's like if I said, I played high school basketball, which I did, and... I also played a few games in the NBA, which would be a huge stretch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. A huge stretch. People would be like, "No, you didn't play."
1: Uh, yeah. Yes. Exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah. I tried out for the Warriors. <laughs>
0: it was pre-Klay Thompson, Steph yeah. Curry. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's
1: funny. What is the
0: most ridiculous, or to use your word, dumb, theory, that you have spent way too much time? thinking it was actually true.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, such a good question. What is the most ridiculous step? Oh, you know what it is? I'm obsessed with this. It's my favorite JFK assassination theory, which I understand is not true. I accept it intellectually, but I can't accept it emotionally because it's such the perfect theory. It's the one that says that uh, JFK was, it says that the first two shots that did not kill JFK were fired by Lee Harvey Oswald. But the third and fatal shot, which is the one that all the controversy is about, was an accidental shot from the Secret Service agent in the car behind him. Right. I love this theory so much. It's so fantastic. Because it just, dif- it just takes, it diffuses 50 years of conspiracy talk. and just says, you know what? It was just a dumb accident. Some guy panicked and his gun went off. And happened to hit the president And that's why the president died And that's why we've been going through this for years and years and years
0: It's not any more ridiculous than the magic bullet Or, or the uh, Well this
1: is the explanation for the magic bullet That the bullet came from Oh I see what you're saying, yes, yes Well
0: do you remember the Seinfeld episode
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where they
0: do the, the magical loogie And it ricochets off Newman And then it hits him in the leg And then it bounces back yeah. I mean that's based on the ridiculousness of the magic bullet The accident I love, I love this. It's See, a great theory. I, I would I go down this true. rabbit hole, too, though.
1: I don't think it's true. There's a whole book written about it. Um, you read this whole book. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I desperately want it to be true. I, I fear it's not, and it breaks my heart. Why do you think it's not true? Just not. I'm just curious now. Some guy who I, who I knew from way back in the day, who actually knows what he's talking about, a very serious journalist, who now runs some website devoted to JFK, Denounced. I mentioned this on a Bill Simmons, either a podcast or in a back and forth with Simmons. That was my favorite theory, and this guy like took me to task so ruthlessly, convincingly, and thoroughly that I was like, you know what, I should stop doing this in public. (laughs) And he knows. I mean, I don't know. I haven't. You know, there's a hundred books written on this. I've read one of them, and I was convinced by the one. I'm not a. You should not listen to me on this subject. So I, I if. If this guy name is Jeff Morley. If Jeff Morley thinks it's horseshit, it's horseshit.
0: Mm. From the first season of Revisionist History, do you remember an episode or rather a theory that people seem to get most infuriated by? I'm infuriated? Listened yes, one that was like, I don't think that doesn't add up to me. Because there was one for me that I wasn't infuriated by, but I was surprised by. Yeah. And it's the one um, where we... Sort of like manifest, des- or like we sort of uh, manifest this problem of us driving the car.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: and and the way the yeah the foot pivots back and forth, yeah. Yeah. or rather doesn't move. Yeah, can you actually for context? Can you explain that a little bit better? That was about
1: the Toyota sudden acceleration controversy, and uh, you know these cars were eight years ago mysteriously accelerating, and Toyota ended up paying out billions of dollars to all kinds of victims. <clears throat> it turns out that the likeliest explanation of what happened is that people had put their foot on the accelerator thinking it was the brake. In turns of this is very common. People, It's called pedal error. People do this all the time. And so we had constructed this huge scenario about what Toyota had allegedly done wrong and how they had committed all kinds of Malpractice in the way they made their cars, but it was just people making a dumb mistake, um, and uh, people. I guess yeah, they were, there were there are some people who refused to believe that who mm-hmm. um, got all upset about it. Weirdly,
0: maybe I'm connecting it to. That's where this come, came up. Honestly, is that the idea of an accident, the accidental shooting? Yeah. This to me seems like a human error. It's, it's but it's an accident. It's not. It's not even intentional.
1: No, it's just an accident. Very understandable one. Um, it's very hard to find a car person who thinks otherwise. So all the car guys, every single person who knows something about cars says, oh, it's just pedal air. They put their foot on the accelerator and they thought it was a brake. Software people really, really believe there was something weird about the Toyota software. And they have these incredibly elaborate theories that violate every principle of intellectual simplicity. So like... They try to come up with these long, complicated discussions about this line of code does this instead of this. Like, dude, you know, there are sensors in a car that tell you whether the brake was engaged. And when these cars get into accidents, we look at the sensor and the sensor says the brake was never engaged. We don't need another complicated explanation. We know. The person didn't put their foot on the brake, (laughs) right? It's not hard, right? So some people love the complicated explanation. I like the simple one. At least well, in that instance, I do.
0: The simple one is often human error. Yeah, and I don't know if people want to... I don't, they don't, I don't like don't. those
1: narratives. Yeah. Why, why is that? Uh, I don't know. I guess we're just protecting people who are scared of... I don't know. It's like, I mean, it's sort of, I suppose it's understandable that people would rather not um, uh, admit to some fault of their own. Maybe it's because... These moments are so terrifying that the only way to make sense of the terror, if your car is excelling and out of control, the only way to make sense of it is to say there must be some dark conspiratorial reason for it. To deflect. Yeah, to kind of just, not even to deflect, just to kind of process what you feel. Mm. Because you're so terrified, the idea that you caused it through your own carelessness or inadvertent carelessness must be just really hard to... um, to accept
0: Mm. is there something like that that's happened to you something that you didn't want to accept that you did something wrong
1: i'm sure i just nothing comes to i mean in the spur of the moment i can't think of something but i'm i'm quite convinced there have been many instances of that i don't think i'm any different from anybody else in this respect you know we we have we have difficulty with these kinds of problems
0: Mm. i guess i bring this up because i was i've re reread the story today how David beats Goliath mm-hmm. um, this is a year after Outliers comes out and he said David's victory over Goliath in the biblical account is held to be an anomaly it was not David's win all the time David can beat Goliath by substituting effort for ability and substituting effort for ability turns out to be a winning formula for underdogs in all walks of life so I think you said this on long form mm-hmm. Eventually, if done right, all Davids become Goliath.
1: Yeah, I think so, probably, yeah. Not all, but many.
0: Many. I'm thinking about this and how it mirrors your career. Mm-hmm. You start as an uh, American spectator, then go to the Washington Post, upstart. You write about AIDS, and you write about uh, you know, the White House. You do, you do all this stuff mm-hmm. as a journalist, your life doesn't look much like that anymore in that um, you're not a post-journalist call- you're making cold calls. Mm. Not that you don't do that for your show, but you have become one of the most recognized public intellectuals in North America, at the very least. So you've become Goliath. Uh,
1: well, Goliath, I mean... Jay Z is Goliath. So let's put this in perspective. I become, you know, less of an underdog than I was in the past. Public
0: intellectuals wise. Yeah. When you say let's not compare ourselves to Kanye and Jay Z because we'll always lose that battle, Malcolm. <laughs>
1: this
0: yes. is like if I was comparing myself to LeBron and Jordan, I would lose. Yeah. I'd be sad about yeah. myself.
1: Um yeah, I I sure I'm I'm I have uh but that happens. Yeah, I mean, I've been around for a long time, so I'm much better known than I was in the past. I think really, the thing is it doesn't it, it hasn't changed. The re- only reason I'm resisting this a little bit is that it hasn't changed what I do. I still I'm still doing essentially a a version of what I was doing back then. It's, it's different in in its form, and it's different. It might be easier now or more complicated or whatever, but it's still I haven't morphed into a different person or taken on a different job Uh. I'm still still at it so that's why it doesn't seem like that I I have metamorphosized into something else
0: are you resistant to it because a lot of people perhaps believe that it, it has changed you or that it ought to have changed you
1: uh I don't know if people believe that uh
0: I think maybe that's the uh surface reading of someone who becomes as successful as you have, yeah, they think this person is x, 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 and X, and they have these qualities and how they're big and famous and blah blah blah,
1: yeah, I don't know, I haven't thought about that because I don't feel different uh, i don't i I just can't imagine. I just don't go down that road. I uh-huh. feel like, I'm, exa- I feel like I, I'm exactly the same, so I don't. Um, I just don't indulge those sorts of scenarios in my head. Mm. Um, I don't feel like I make different choices now. I mean, I know stuff I don't didn't know before, um, but I'm not, you know. The and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing podcasts now, writing books. I wasn't doing that when I started out, but it's the same basic. I'm engaged in the same basic process.
0: Mm. Well, I'm glad you pushed back on that because it, it, it's a theory
1: I had. Yeah, yeah. And you didn't like it. Uh, I, should, I, I mean, By the way, you might be true. You might. Be, you might you, what you say might be true. I'm just saying I don't. I may, in fact, be totally different and not realize it, which is would be. By the way, totally um, plausible, right? Mm. Most of the ways in which we change, we may be um, unaware of. Um so I think it would be
0: fine by the way. The premise of for my my thing is it's okay to be Goliath. I d I don't think there's no pejorative evidence. Oh. I I think it's fine. Yeah. I think you've put in a lot of work. It's it's you've you've had the mix of effort and ability. Yeah. And that's something to applaud, I mean in in, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I don't um I don't really want to be to get I don't like the idea of getting big um, that's why I'm resisting it a little bit I, uh. find, I just find it a little bit um uh, no my, my response to it uh, you know I'd, I'm never someone who looks at a celebrity and says I wish that was my life I sort of think the lives of celebrities sound terrifying to me um, uh, so I sort of like, that's, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, that kind of uh, being in the spotlight. Mm. Um, and um, I don't particularly want to be scrutinized personally in the way that we scrutinize celebrities personally, you know. Mm. So that I'm not interested in. That. I didn't do this to become um, well-known. I did this because I enjoy um, creating these little, um, these little things.
0: The criticism has been confounding to me for the most part and I've always wondered, do you think, is receiving more criticism just a byproduct of becoming more recognizable? Is it just a volume game?
1: It's a volume game. Just a volume game. Your critics are just a constant percentage of your readers. So if you have more readers, you have more critics. It's not, it's nothing more than that. It's an illusion to think that um, that you attract more critics as you grow in stature uh, or attract a larger portion of critics, you attract your, I think you just like it's just a, you know, when you can find lots and lots of people who denounce uh, John Grisham novels. Why? Because the man sells a hundred million, you know, has probably sold in his life, I don't know how many, 500 million books. If you sell 500 million books, you're going to have a million critics. Right? There's no way around it. That's just, you know, so you can't, ju- it is not, if John Grisham were to get obsessed with his 1 million critics, he would be an idiot because he has 499 million fans. <laughs> right? Didn't you
0: write a review of his stuff in The New Republic?
1: I have written, what have I written about Grisham? I found something. I always today. wanted to write something. Yes, I did once about, in, yeah, years it an, ago. It was in 96. Yeah, good lord, you do. You do your homework, don't you? <laughs> that seemed even I had forgotten it.
0: that seemed like you weren't excited that I did
1: my homework no I was I mean I'm very impressed I like I kind of liked that article was that about smoking uh huh yeah that's right I was I was proud of that it's a good piece yeah I still it's one of those pieces from 20 years ago that uh I think I still that is still my position that <laughs> this um, is back to the flip flopping yeah, yeah. I have not flip flopped on the idea that uh, the argument from addiction is much more important than the argument from choice. Mm. Um, the reason we're upset about tobacco companies and opioid com- sellers and all those kinds of people is not that they have distorted our choices, but they have removed our cho- By virtue of selling an addictive product, they have removed the capacity for choice. And you can't use a choice paradigm to evaluate their behavior. You can't say, if only we were better educated about opioids, we wouldn't have so many overdoses. It's not about being educated about it. It's the fact that you take it and you're addicted, right? (laughs) It's like this kind of confusion, this notion that we want to think that, you know, the same rules apply to hamburgers as apply to painkillers. It's not true, right?
0: Seems like a false equivalency. Yeah. But choice has been something you've been fascinated in, Seemingly your whole, I mean, I I love the TED Talk you did in 2004 where you're talking about choice and selection and and options. Mm -hmm. That was 13 years ago. The options have multiplied tenfold. But there's a quote that's great that you say, people don't know what they want. Mm -hmm. Do you think that still stands?
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's been true for as long as people have been around. I mean... We think we know what we want. We make choices. But invariably, I think our reasons are much deeper than we're aware of. And also, the real reason we don't know what we want is that we don't know what's out there. Um, So one of the wonderful things about being a human being and consuming art, other people's art, I mean that broadly, very broadly, is that they surprise you, right? You read something and blows you away. I didn't know that that would bring me pleasure. If you'd asked me, you know, I recently listening to the, um, and I'm going to mispronounce their name, is it the Avet Brothers? They're a country band. They're kind of a cool country band. And if you'd asked me before I listened to the Avet Brothers, would you like a kind of neo-traditionalist kind of alt country something from the south guys with tattoos you know like if you did the whole thing i'd be like i don't know (laughs) i couldn't identify that as i wouldn't have given it in my list of things that would bring me pleasure but then i hear it like oh good lord that's good i had no idea right that's that is there's no choice in that i didn't choose the avet brothers because i thought that would bring me pleasure i stumbled on the avet brothers and was Stunned to learn, they bring me pleasure, and that second condition is far more um, not just prevalent but powerful. Most, of, I think, most of what brings you pleasure is the stuff that you would never have thought brings you pleasure.
0: Do you think that's because the art chooses you? Because the what? Do you think? Do you think that? Yeah. Do you think that's because the art chooses you?
1: Yeah, or that you're just you. You don't know the... You can't um, put a fence around your imagination. We always think we can. We always want to kind of define our, our imaginations using the, the, the vocabulary and experiences we already have. But our imagination is so much larger than we are. Then our unconscious is interested in vastly more than we're aware of. And so we're always going to be wonderfully and beautifully surprised by what's out there. Mm.
0: Something that I would describe as uh, wonderful and beautiful is, and this is going to sound odd, but right as I had the drive over here, I was listening to your intro for season two. And you say, uh, I have a weakness for the big idea. Maybe a fatal weakness. On my tombstone, it's going to say Malcolm Gladwell, rest in peace. His one big idea is that there was one big idea to explain everything.
1: Yeah. I'm making fun of myself in that very <laughs> you know, clearly.
0: I find that wonderful. <laughs> what I found most wonderful about that comment um, is not only the sentiment behind it, but the placement of it, which is that, here's season two of the show, forget anything else, I'm going to lead with this fucking thing Yeah. that everyone has been saying, here it is, and you know what? I'm leaning into it. Yeah.
1: I mean, the shows, the great thing about the podcast is that the opportunities for a kind of playful self parody are epic. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, who knew? If, if you listen, there's a couple of episodes which really I am, I am just making fun of myself. I mean, in a kind of like in the season two? Yeah, in a kind of a high end way. I'm just like saying, at a certain point, Malcolm Gladwell is ridiculous. And here's me being ridiculous. Let's just roll with it and see what... Um, the one I recorded today is... Yeah, I mean, it's absurd. I mean, it's just, it's just me. Just. <laughs> what, what's so absurd? I mean, it's like... It's absurd in a good, fun way, in a way that I like absurd, which is you take a germ of a good idea and then you just, like, push it as far <laughs> as it can be humanly pushed <laughs> until the point that... There's a point in this episode that I did t- today where if you know a lot about music, you're going to get really upset because I'm just, I'm just fucking with you. I mean, I really just am. <laughs> I go after the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's just like, it's just absurd kind of, but it's fun and it ends up somewhere, I think, important. And, I, you know, there's this thing I've always believed, which is that um, ideas can be as fun as and entertaining as anything. Mm. There's no reason why just because we're dealing with ideas, we have to get all serious we can enjoy ourselves, right? You could take an idea and play with it for forty minutes and if it 's absurd at the end, whatever, just like put it down and move on with your life. But you can have fun for forty minutes playing with this idea right and that's what that's what some of the some of these not all of them some of them are are we're just goofing around with interesting ideas
0: so is it okay when
1: critics call you an entertainer? i don't think of that as a criticism. I think that is a That is the highest of praise, Um, you know, uh, in the way that, you know, really great teachers are entertainers. Uh, You know, anyone who can um, communicate something um, important in a way that is uh, um, unexpectedly delightful or moving or engaging is an entertainer. That's kind of... Um, that word is not, a, is not pejorative in my book.
0: Why do you think people want to hear you communicate something? What do you think it is about you that you present an idea and an audience says, okay, I'm in?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think I have a... Only I would say I just I have a track record. You know, you, I built up a certain amount of trust over the years and people know i'm a known quantity they know they have a vague at least a better than a vague idea of what they're in for um
0: but they didn't in the beginning
1: no but in the beginning i had a much smaller audience so i think you know i think the thing to remember is that i've been doing this for 30 years right so i started out as a journalist in the 80s so it's like a that's a very important thing to To keep in mind, I have been painstakingly putting together this audience for for a generation. Painstakingly? Yeah. I mean, it's been slow and steady. I mean, it was a kind of 10 years at the Washington Post, you know, uh, another 20 years at the New Yorker, you know, years before the Washington Post, you know, in the kind of um, magazine world of Washington, D.C. I mean, it's been a long time steady process are you tired no i mean no i'm enjoying myself why would i there's no reason to be tired
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that sounds i mean 30 years is a bit I, yeah I, I i think it would be okay if you said to me yeah i'm a little exhausted
1: no i mean maybe one day i'll be exhausted i mean i'm, I'm still uh i still find it really fun and i'm you know uh finding new ways to amuse myself so mm.
0: The last thing I wanted to bring up to you is that, uh, back to that TED Talk in 2004, you're talking about Howard Moskowitz, and the last line you say is that, that is the final and I think most beautiful lesson of Howard Moskowitz, that embracing the diversity of human beings, we will find a sure way to true happiness. Mm-hmm. This is maybe too sentimental for you. Mm -hmm. But have you found that? Me personally?
1: Yeah. I mean, not wholly. But um, I do think that idea has helped me uh, make sense of a lot of things that might otherwise perplex me or discourage me, which is you have to start from the position that everybody's different And everyone processes things differently and the contents of your own mind are not shared by those around you and when you keep that in mind it um, it just makes life a lot more livable you know when you remember even in the most prosaic moment when you are on talking to a customer service rep and you're (laughs) losing patience and you just want to yell at them and then you remember This person does this for a living. They talk to people like you all day long, and their life experience then is profoundly different from yours, right? When you understand that, they're not in the same. They don't come at this from your direction. They come at this from the other direction of having to deal with these complaints all day long. And when you realize that, you're like, oh, and you can relax. You're like, why am I angry? This person. I mean, making like that's a very very simple prosaic. Version of that same idea that the person on the other end of the line is not in your position. They're they're in a different, and that's true all the way down the line. In everything you do, the people you're dealing with are occupying a different um, spot in the universe. And if you never, if you try hard not to forget that, then your life is easier. It's just way easier. Right? There's just less opportunities for for getting uh, mad at the world.
0: That was a expectedly a uh, beautiful calculation of how to be happy. By the way, oh, thank you, uh, Malcolm. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you. This is really fun.
0: Listen to talk easy, I want to give a special thanks this week to Malcolm Gladwell. If you'd like to hear season four of his new show, you can visit their website at revisionisthistory.com. If you'd like to learn more about Malcolm, you can do so on our website at talkeasypod.com. Our show is available to stream on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to give a special thanks to Talk Easy listener Adam Leishman for making a generous donation to the show. If you would like to learn how to uh, help us out, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com slash donate. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our intern is Ghani Zur, our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our associate producer is Ian Chang, who uh, will be leaving us as of next week. We wish him well in New York, and uh, the show would not be where it is without him. So, uh, much love to our friend Ian Chang. The show is also produced by the wonderful Neil Innes, and uh, I'm San Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. I will see you back here next Sunday. Uh, with another one of my favorite episodes. Hope you all have a good week. So long, everyone.
1: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress.